Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. And we are live. Hello, welcome. My name is Rose Trabick, and I'm the publicist for Ignatius Press. Thank you so much for joining us today during our June month of novels promotion we've been running. And we are very happy to have with us today one of our great authors, Fiorella De Maria. Fiorella joins us all the way from England. And Fiorella has an extensive writing background. She's published seven, I believe, seven novels with Ignatius Press and also a work of nonfiction, The Abolition of Woman, How Radical Feminism is Betraying Women. So Fiorella, we're so excited to be talking to you today. Welcome. It's lovely to be on the show. It's nice to see you face to face at last. Yes, exactly. We normally email. So this is a special treat to be able to actually converse here. Um, so Fiorella, um, as I mentioned, we've been running this um, June month of novels on social media here at Ignatius Press. And so I pulled out a bunch of your novels. I don't have all of them here, but I just wanted to show everybody just you know, an overview of what you've written here for Ignatius Press and also the wide variety of genres that you've written, right? I mean, you have mysteries, you have historical fiction. So I'm just going to show up a few of those. Um, and you have, I believe, the first of your Father Gabriel mysteries there, The Sleeping Witness. So we're going to talk about that. Um, and there's three so far. So I have the other oh. two, See No Evil. Oh, and you have them too. Okay, so, right. covered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these are mysteries. Um, so we're going to talk about those in a few minutes. And then you also have historical fiction. So I have two of the, these titles right here, A Most Dangerous Innocence, and then We'll Never Tell Them. So we're going to talk about these, hopefully. We'll see how much we can get through. And then you've also written like a more modern story, um, Do No Harm, which is, how would you call it? Like a medical drama? Medical um, legal <laughs> drama, I suppose. Yes. So it's just absolutely fascinating how many different novels you've written. And I'm curious to know, how would you define what a Catholic writer is or what a Catholic novel is, if someone was to ask you that? Well, I do get asked that a lot, and I'm not sure there is an easy answer to that. I mm -hmm. think, in a way, it's difficult to put a label on someone, you know, when they're a writer. And I, I always tend to shy away a little bit when, when people do that. But I, I suppose, you know, when one is Catholic, faith just permeates everything we do, or every aspect of our life, or it should do. And the same is true of writing. So the way I see it is I write within the Catholic moral universe. Mm. And I don't set out to write a Catholic novel. In fact, apart from my mystery stories, very few of them have a lot of priests and nuns in them. But the faith ought to permeate the story just naturally without too much effort. Yeah. And so I've I've read most of your works over the years, but um, I reread a lot of the um, your books in preparation for this interview. And one of the things that I really found in your novels is that you have the gift of being able to tell a good story that brings people in. And like you said, it it's not some of them are have more Catholic themes or more, you know, like Father Gabriel in the mysteries. But some of them, the faith is more subtle and you're just telling this powerful um, story where you're weaving the faith in. Um, is that right? 
Well, I think in the end, there's no point in being a writer unless you can tell a story. It ought to be the first thing. It ought to be the only reason, really, that you write is because you've got a story to tell. And I think one of the problems with a lot of a lot of attempts at Catholic and broadly Christian fiction is that there tends to be this desire to write about faith or write about a particular subject, you know, abortion or euthanasia or something. And if you start with a theme that you have to put across and you build the story around it, it's not likely to work. Whereas if you have a story, you have an idea for a character, you can just let it flow and let the themes sort of unravel. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I've read, you know, some other novels like that where you felt like it was kind of preachy and that yeah. like, you know, and so I just want to say if you if you've had that experience and you're watching and you maybe had a bad experience with it with a so-called Catholic novel, you know, Fiorella, you really do an amazing job in just weaving the faith in, in a natural way, telling a, a powerful story. Um, and so I really encourage people to pick that up. And um, thank you so much for explaining that, because I think that is the perfect way to understand what a Catholic writer is. Um, so we'll just jump right into maybe some of your books here. Um, so let's start with Father Gabriel. So um, this interview is mainly going to be about mysteries, and you have quite a few mysteries. Um, I've enjoyed these so much. Again, there's three so far with this character of Father Gabriel, and you have the third one there. Um, so where did Father Gabriel come from? Um, how did you decide um, to write about a priest detective? <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> Crime fiction is my dirty little secret. I love, <laughs> I really love crime fiction. I've been reading it since I was seven. I read my first Sherlock Holmes and scared myself half to death. <laughs> age seven, reading The Speckled Band. I was waiting for the snake to come down the bell pool for, for weeks afterwards. Um, I just love the puzzle. I love the human drama. And so I've always wanted to create my own mystery series. And one Easter, I think it was, I was talking to my in-laws about it and my mother-in-law and I sort of hammered out the main characters. Um, I wanted him to be a priest, but I wanted him to be believably a priest. He's actually an English Benedictine, so he belongs to a community and the other monks really are almost like the sidekicks. You've mm. got Father Dominic, who's the infirmarian, who provides the medical details. You've got Brother Gerard, who's the cheeky novice, who climbs up walls and things and breaks in and breaks into buildings and whatever and gets into trouble. Um, so they, they all have a part to play. And I, I wanted very much to create that idea of um, a priest within a religious community. Mm. Mm -hmm. No, I find him so likable, Father Gabriel. <laughs> he's he's funny and um, he's inquisitive and he's smart. Um, and, you know, he's a very human character and um, very, you know, very interesting. And I've enjoyed getting to know him as I've read um, the different books. Um, so these stories, I believe all three are set um, post-World War II. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. yes. why, did you, why did you pick that setting? Well, there were, there were two main reasons. They're set in the, the late 40s, sort of 47, 48, that kind of time. And it was a time of huge, huge change in Britain because you had the, the end of the war. You had a Labour government for the first time who were very crusading and they were really taking Britain from being a kind of imperial power to being a welfare state. You had the establishment of a national health service. You had big building projects to clear the slums and get people into better housing. So big changes on a social level happening. But also there had just been a massive conflict, the bloodiest conflict in human history. And you had a lot of people 
settling scores, dealing with difficult histories, trying to adjust to civilian life after being away sometimes for six years. So I felt it was a very fertile ground for a mystery story. And in fact, all the mystery stories deal with some aspect of the war. Mm. Um, and again, you know, this is a very popular subject to write about World War Two and it's it's yeah. time around that. So um, I think a lot of people, if you're looking for a good mystery um, and you especially if you enjoy World War Two novels, this is this is a great fit. Um, I did want to ask, because um, I'm sure many people will ask this. Um, were you inspired by the famous character of Father Brown and the Father Brown mysteries? And how is Father uh, Gabriel different and these books different? I've I've read so much detective fiction. Obviously, I have been inspired by Father Brown, Brother Cadfile, Father Dowling, of course. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he's contemporary, but he's not. He's 1980s, yeah. which is not <laughs> anymore. Um, and, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Poirot, the lot. And yes, I, I was, I suppose I was inspired to write a clerical figure by mm. Chesterton. But where I think Father Gabriel is very different is... Um, without in any way wishing to criticise Chesterton, whom I love, I wanted Gabriel very much to be a priest. You very rarely see Father Brown actually saying mass or hearing confessions. Mm -hmm. I think, who was it who said that he was an adorable loafer? Because <laughs> well, whatever he was doing in his parish, he was not looking after anybody. Was, he was, <laughs> and, you know, there, there are a lot of moments with Father Gabriel where he'll be at the police station and he'll suddenly remember he's supposed to be doing a catechism class or something. And he'll be running, you know, yes. trying desperately to be a priest and a detective at the same time. Um, making him a, de a detective Benedictine, it gives its own flavour because the religious life is very different to that of a, a secular priest. And yes. mm -hmm. he has this constant conflict where he's trying to cope with the rhythms of monastic life at the same time as getting drawn back into the world constantly. And that, that, that conflict is very much at the heart, particularly of the first novel. And he is supposed to be a little bit on the spectrum. Mm. Um, which is why he does tend to think very obsessively and why he has this sort of lovable innocence, mm. but this slightly anarchic way of seeing the world as well. He finds it difficult to keep rules because he gets obsessed with an idea and just has to take it to its conclusion. Mm. Um, but it's also why he sees through people because mm. he's completely guileless, so he doesn't get it when people are trying to deceive him. Right. No, he's he's such a lovable character, and I love that you mentioned that um, the idea was to have him as part of a community. So you definitely get to know these um, other characters in the books. Um, so again, if, if anyone is looking for a good mystery, um, especially set in World War II with a great priest detective, definitely check out the Father Gabriel Mysteries and we'll be dropping the links below there. Um, I'm also curious to know, now I've heard this and maybe you're going to correct me here, but that there's almost like, uh, since you're such a mystery fan here, that there's almost like a... a a process to writing a mystery like um like there it's almost like a skill that you can learn um and i'm curious to know if you found that to be the case or if it's just something that kind of came naturally to you or if you kind of had to like take a class or research how to write a mystery um well i suppose the research was reading lots of mysteries um, that's really how I, how I did the research. I've never done a creative writing class in my life, um, and I, I have mixed feelings about them. But I think there is definitely a formula, mm -hmm. unlike other novels. And I think really Agatha Christie 
cemented that idea you know the the limited number of characters the fairly isolated setting the denouement they're not giving away too much information near the end so people could work it out but never do that's mm-hmm. that's the ideal is that yes when the person gets to the end of the, the book and realizes oh it was so obvious it was obviously him yes. Yes. um yeah but at no point during the book do they in fact guess so yes there are definitely conventions that you are expected to keep and it's frowned upon if you break them so with the mystery books i i do have quite detailed plans you know i'll work out the characters the different aspects of the characters and a chapter by chapter plan so that the clues get released in an appropriate order and you don't get to the end and realize oh no i forgot to mention the butler saw that or whatever right. Yeah. Right. Whereas with my other books, I like to just let it flow. You know, I don't yes. like to too much of a plan. So the mystery, the process of writing a mystery is different than, say, writing a historical fiction or you know a thriller or something like that. Is that right? It's kind yeah, of a, it's, its own its own uh, process, huh? Yeah, and I think the planning is the hardest part. It's like that putting together the puzzle, making sure there aren't any plot holes or not too many plot holes there are always plot holes in in mystery stories but you know making sure it all fits together very nicely and the actual writing of it is quite a quick process wow that's that's fascinating um so there's another book i wanted to speak about which i don't know if i'd necessarily call it a mystery it is mysterious um i maybe more of a thriller and historical fiction and that is this book a most dangerous innocence um, and I believe someone just commented a few minutes ago that they just started it. That's so great. Right. Um, it's fantastic. I just reread this. Um, and I also wanted to just uh, give a plug for people that maybe have teenagers or even mature preteens. My 12-year-old daughter just read this and absolutely loved it. Um, and so I think it's a great like coming-of-age novel also. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? It, it is a coming-of-age novel in that the heroine is a 16-year-old schoolgirl, and I set it in 1940, which was a very important moment in the war for Britain. It was the last days of the phony war, um, moving into the invasion and occupation of France and Dunkirk and, and all of those very dramatic moments. And I wanted to try as hard as possible to write a novel where one doesn't anticipate the fact that it's going to end well because one of the difficulties when you're writing about the war is we won you know we know the allies won and so there's always this assumption that this is going to be a short-lived problem nazism will be defeated and we'll all go back to you know our cozy lives afterwards whereas of course in 1940 nobody knew mm. how it was going to end britain stood alone under imminent threat of invasion. It was a very, very dark, very dangerous time. So I really tried to bring that out in the story. It's set in an English boarding school near the coast. So you see that encroachment of the war, the barbed wire snaking its way across the beaches where they're preparing their defences. And it is tragicomic. It's meant to be very humorous because it's about schoolgirls and it's particularly about a very autistic 16-year-old mathematician who's very bored and very frustrated and keeps seeing conspiracies everywhere. And in another age, there would have been no threat involved in that. She would have just been a schoolgirl getting into trouble. But of course, because you've got this backdrop of the war, it should not be clear until right near the end exactly where it's going. 
Um, but but I, I did I did really enjoy writing Most Dangerous Innocence. It's, you're not supposed to have a favorite novel, but I did enjoy that. <laughs> well, that's you know I, I'm I'm so happy to hear you say that was your favorite novel because that's really I think my favorite novel that you've written. Um, I, I mean maybe that and then the next one we're going to talk about um, we'll never tell them. But um, again, you really captured this sense of like what you're saying that no one knew who the who was going to win the war mm. and the the you know just how terrifying that must have been. Um, and this is, you know, also I would consider this historical fiction in a sense too. Um, what, you know, when you look at history, what can a historical fiction novel teach us that maybe just reading a history book can't? A really good, sympathetic, well-researched historical novel and I'm, I'm making those conditions, <laughs> I think can really bring the past to life mm. in the way that a textbook with facts and figures can't to the same extent, because you can really, it's almost like a form of time travel. You can really step into the lives and the families of people who were living at a different time. Mm-hmm. Very different attitudes and very different ideas, and yet human nature not really changing. People went to work, sent their children to school, worried about their children, had rows in their marriages, you know, all of these sort of human dramas. And yet you you almost get a portal into a different world. Unfortunately, I think an awful lot of historical novels, and this is what I try so hard to avoid with mine, are really just modern novels with people in period dress. Mm. They're very modern attitudes, very modern ideas, and one never really gets the sense of stepping into the past. So it can be dangerous. You can give people a false history. Mm-hmm. If you're well, not- yeah, I, I definitely feel that in your novels. I feel how well-researched it is, how much I learn about history. And then one thing that I love about reading historical fiction is that a lot of times I go back and then I look up history. I read history to see, yeah. did that happen exactly like that? Was that artistic license? You know, kind of to learn that. So um, it's just a really, I agree, it's just a, an amazing way to not only learn history, but also to really put yourself into what it must have been like to live through that. And I definitely feel that with um, with The Most Dangerous Innocence, um, so that, that I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you for writing these. These are so great. Um, and I did want to cover one other historical fiction novel, which is We'll Never Tell Them. Um, again, I just reread this like two days ago, and it was gripping. This book is gripping. So if if you're kind of on the fence about which one you want to pick up, I don't know. This might be my favorite. <laughs> but um, tell us a little bit about this book. Yes, well, it's a little inspired by my own travels in the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent time actually in a French hospital in East Jerusalem, just helping out very much in the way that Christiana helps out. And I did meet some extraordinary people. And Leo Hampton is very, very loosely based on a, on a few people I met, though not on anyone specific. Um, and I created, I wanted to use a, a modern heroine to take people into the past because I felt that the world of Edwardian colonial Malta and First World War is so far away from our own experience that almost you needed the portal of the modern character to take you back and of course as you know what happens is she's escaping from the modern world she drops her mobile phone into the Thames 
takes herself on an aeroplane back to Jerusalem, leaves her boyfriend and everything behind. And as we've all sort of wanted to do, at least at some stage in our lives, just leave it all, leave it all behind. And she develops this friendship with this dying man who tells his story and it is his mother's story in fact mm-hmm. um, that you read about in the book of what it was like to grow up in Edwardian Malta to go to boarding school in England to be a nurse during the First World War so you see really the early 20th century through the eyes of uh, the character of Liliana. Mm-hmm. And this this book takes you through you know her experiences um, through the First World War, but then also even into the Second World War. Is that right? Yes. So, right. so it's it's fascinating to see this character. You know, you think of, you know, obviously we have our own challenges in our day and age, but yeah. really that generation that lived through, I believe I've heard you say this in other interviews before, like the First World War, it was like their husbands and their sweethearts getting killed. And then the Second World War, it was their sons. Yeah. Um, what an incredible group of people that was and what they lived through and what they sacrificed. Um, So I really, really enjoyed um, reading, you know, their stories of those two women and how they're connected. Um, So, yeah, and I did want to also mention that all of our novels this month are 25% off at Ignatius.com. So, you know, if obviously everyone has their preferences, but I really love that book. We'll never tell them. I just found it to be very, very gripping. And it really took me back into um, that era. And I learned a lot from it. Um, So again, because you have so many books, I want to keep moving along here (laughs) so we can kind of get through them. Um, The next one I wanted to talk about was this book, Do No Harm, which, you know, came out quite a while ago. Um, This is a more modern story. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this one. Yes. um, It's my most different, actually, because as you've noted it's not a historical novel it's the only one I think that is contemporary and really I got the inspiration for that I used to work for the pro-life movement and I was at an end-of-life conference some years ago and there'd been an act of parliament how how laws get changed where um, the withdrawal of food and fluids had been codified as uh, medical care Mm. Sorry, it is medical treatment, not basic care. So meaning that doctors could be forced to dehydrate their patients to death. Mm. And I mean, you had this with the Terry Schiavo case and all you've had had those battles in the States. And I was at a conference where a nurse stood up to a pro-euthanasia speaker and said, what am I to do if I'm told to cut the tubes what do you want me to do? Mm. And he says, oh, well, just muddle through. You'll probably be fine. And she was saying, well, I can't. You're a philosopher. You can muddle through. I have to decide, do I remove the tubes or don't I? And I realized how vulnerable medical professionals were going to be mm. with these new laws, that they might find themselves in a position like that with nobody standing by them. So you have the character in Do No Harm of Matthew Kemble. He is a doctor. He's an A&E or um, emergency room, I think you'd say, And someone is brought in unconscious. She has an advanced directive saying she doesn't want to be treated. And he makes the decision to treat her Mm. and finds himself on trial. Mm -hmm. And really, the the book is exploring what is happening to the medical profession in Britain and the vulnerability of doctors. And the tragic thing is that as I speak, a doctor I know is facing being struck off for saving life. Wow. Wow. The very, the very horror I hoped, I thought would happen, but hoped would never happen, is actually coming to pass. 
So I look at that book very differently now. Wow, that is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and again, you know, just the power of a story. Um, you know, you might read about this in a newspaper and maybe think, well, okay, that's, you know, maybe that won't happen or it's not a big deal. But when you actually read a story about how, no, this is something serious and real and how it actually affects people and can hurt people. And again, thinking of it from the perspective of those workers and what it's like to be them, their families, their careers. Um, again, just the, the power of a good story um, to to get these truths across and to discuss these questions. I think it's so important. Um, so I, I, you know, again, so many different um, genres that you've written, we, you, mysteries, historical fiction, thriller, suspense, a modern story. Um, I want to know, how do you find the time to write as, a, you know, I know you have, I believe, four kids. Um, <laughs> like, what does this look like for you on a daily basis? Are you like going off into a room, a quiet room for 10 hours at a time? Or do you have to write in patches? How does that look for you, Fiorella? Um, I, I, I long for the day I can just disappear for eight hours and, and write. Uh, it's not quite, I'm not quite there yet. And I'm homeschooling one of my children. Oh boy. That's so, <laughs> pretty busy. Um, I, one of my children is a competitive figure skater. So I do at least some of my writing at the side of the ice rink. Um, okay. In the morning, wow. I have my laptop, I sit in the cafe um, and I, I write at different parts of the day, depending on, on when I can fit it in. Um, I've learned to write very quickly and also to pick up the threads very fast. I mean, I have I have little things I do, like, for example, I never stop writing at the end of a chapter. Mm. It's always harder to get started at the beginning of a new chapter than if you're in the oh. middle of something. Okay. That's what I find. So um, I, the little things like that help me to keep the momentum going. Wow. And do you have any advice for like someone that maybe wants to be a writer? Maybe they're watching here and they, they enjoy writing. What's your biggest piece of advice for them? Write something. <laughs> there's there's so writing. many. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It, that may seem, obvi seem obvious, but I know so many people who, who are aspiring to write and they're thinking about it and planning and trying to discern what they should be doing. Just sit down at your laptop and write something. That's, that's great advice. So I'm assuming that you probably have notebooks and um, lots of different, you know, notepads lying around or just a lot of documents in your computer of just a lot of stories you've started throughout the years. Um, oh, have, yes. you been, have you been writing ever since you were a young child or is this something that you took up as an adult? Uh, it is something I've been doing since I was a child. I, I would pay good money not to see anything I wrote when I was seven years old, but I'm sure my father's got it squirreled away somewhere to embarrass me. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I've, I've always wanted to write and I've always loved writing. And I think one of the difficulties for children yeah. particularly, and if there are any young people listening, um, that it's, it takes a long time to be publishable. You know, you really have to be an adult to have had just that life experience and the, the maturity to be able to actually put together a book that is going to be published and read. But you sort of can't get there unless you do a lot of writing that probably nobody except your best friend is going to read. <laughs> or your mom, right? <laughs> or your mom. I never let my mom read my stuff. Um, but don't get your family to do that. Um, but you know what I, you know what I mean? It, it's sort of, unfortunately, it's a process you have to go through. Mm. You know, you don't get to be the published author unless you've done a lot of writing before then. So don't be discouraged. Just keep at it.
Well, I think that's great advice. And I've also heard that another important thing is just like to read a lot of good books. Is that, did you find oh, yeah. that to help you? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not like saying, my sister's a, a professional musician. She went to music school. There is no such thing as a writing school, really, mm-hmm. in the same way. So if you have a flair for writing, just read lots, read the classics. And you're getting a masterclass every single time in how to write a really good novel. It always shows if I see if a teenager sends me something they've written, I can always tell the ones who are well read. Mm, wow. It's just something about the vocabulary, the way they the way they construct a plot. You know, it may not be publishable, but it's good. Mm. You know, and you can see the potential there. Do you have I'm putting you on the spot here, Fiorella, <laughs> but do you have okay. like a, a favorite novel that comes to mind that influenced you um uh, or an well, author a favorite author maybe <laughs> well which ones I've read I read all the time and I've I think I've read 70 books this year oh, um, wow. so yeah I'm, I'm a very very avid reader so it's difficult to say that there's one novel I think for me a big breakthrough in terms of developing a style was actually reading Asian and Commonwealth authors because coming from a a Maltese background myself, I found the sort of the, the conventional novel in some ways quite alien culturally. You know, the whole way of constructing a story was slightly different to what I was used to. And reading people like Salman Rushdie, for example, mm. who combined the oral tradition of his Indian background with the modern novel, I just found very, very interesting. And certainly it had a big influence on particularly on my early writing. Wow. Um, and I believe that um, you're working. Well, actually, no, let me say you've finished a novel, a new novel that's going to be coming out from Ignatius Press in the fall. Can you tell us a little bit about that quickly? We'll right, well, this is the first time I've co-authored a novel. Um, it's a very different experience uh, to do that, but very interesting as well. I wrote it with KB Turley. And it's very different. He's pushed me well out of my comfort zone. It is a horror story. Oh. Um, yes, it's about wow. the golden age of Hollywood and the horror industry and the, the late actor Bella Lugosi, who made Dracula famous. So it's very much, it's a human drama, but very much with a dark twist. Well, I'm amazed that you're adding a book like that to your repertoire of different categories, different genres that you've written um, I'm really excited to read that when it comes out in the fall. Um, so we're going to be wrapping up here in just a second. Um, but Fiorella, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and um, if you are looking for a good novel, again, please follow us on Instagram or Facebook or check out our website, Ignatius.com, where all of our novels this month are 25% off. We also have giveaways and different um, staff recommendations. Um, so hopefully you check that out. And Fiorella, again, thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to read your new book and see what you write in the future. Thank you. It's been lovely to be on the show. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.